Welcome to Leading for Life Stories Season 2. My name is Bob Judson and I'm your host for this podcast and I'm absolutely delighted to have you here joining me. Thanks very much and I really, really hope you enjoy what follows. My guest this week is a fellow podcast host, Jonathan Bowman-Perks, who runs the very successful Inspiring Leadership podcast, which is rapidly approaching its 300th episode Jonathan's got a fascinating career, having started in the army and uh, built a great career there, but then stepped out and has built an even more successful career out in the private sector, having worked with a number of major companies, including uh, PricewaterhouseCooper, IBM, Penner, and now running his own very successful leadership business where he does coaching and, uh, and as I've already mentioned, runs uh, runs a great podcast. He kindly had me on as a guest on uh, on his podcast in the latter part of last year, and it was very evident when we were preparing for that that we uh, we had a real connection because of our backgrounds. Our, both our fathers actually died when we were young. His tragically killed in a uh, in a flying accident. Mine dying of natural causes. But uh, beyond that, there's the military piece, there's the leadership piece, there's so many things that we really did uh, did connect on. And so when we did this podcast, it was a fascinating conversation, which uh, I really hope you enjoy, because I think there are lots of great leadership nuggets for, uh, for anyone that is interested in this kind of business and, uh, and wants to improve their own leadership skills. I think some of the things we have learned along the way might hopefully be useful to you. So really hope you enjoy it. Happy listening and uh, and do let me have some feedback, depending on what you think. Thanks very much. So Jonathan, welcome. Really great to uh, to have you on the podcast. As a fellow podcaster, you were kind enough to have me on yours uh, a little while ago and it's great to reciprocate because I think we had a fantastic conversation then and uh, I'm really looking forward to what we have now. Yeah, well, thanks, Bob, because you, you had such a wealth of experience, tips and techniques and, and our journeys are, are different but similar. And, and so, yeah, lovely to reciprocate and be be back on yours. Thank you for having me on. No, it's a pleasure. And, and uh, yeah, you're right. I think the journeys are different but similar. And we'll come back to that, I'm sure, because I've got, uh, I want to drill into that a little bit. Cause I think we'll have different perspectives on some things. Um, much like me, though, you began with a military career, but you've then transitioned, obviously, into uh, into the private sector very successfully. And you've been doing that for a long time. Um, I think just to get us started, can you give uh, the listeners just a bit of a flavour of, of your overall career right from the beginning? Yeah, I think with uh, with any uh, stories, there's there's a, a lovely simple technique. Then, now, and how? Uh, how were things then? How are they now? And 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 how did I get from here to there? And I think if I go back to then, um, you know, aged eighteen, uh, arriving at the gates of Sandhurst. My mother um, meeting the company sergeant major Dave Cox, who went on being academy sergeant major, and he goes, "Thank you, ma'am." I says, I'll, "I'll take that. I'm your mother now." You know, in that that famous line that they love to use in good guards etiquette, culturing uh, Grandier Guard. Um, and so, yeah, I'd, I'd sort of grown up a uh, single parent uh, family. Uh, my father killed when I was two and a half. We can talk about that another time. Um, one of three brothers, and. Um, Really, pretty underconfident. I think when I first began in life, um, struggling with I didn't realize at the time dyslexia. I probably didn't realize until I was in my late thirties that that was the problem. Just thought I was a bit thick. The teacher told me I was thick. I couldn't do my maths. I couldn't spell. Um, and 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 probably did solo sports. I was at boarding school a bit. 
but then the money ran out. Um, so my mother couldn't afford to keep me there. And so I went to the grammar school in Halifax, or pronounced Halifax when you're from Yorkshire. And um, that was a bit of a culture shock from, from a sort of single-sex boarding school to a, to a co-ed grammar school um, where I was the posh one uh, and didn't have a Yorkshire accent because of, of how we were as a family, but had always grown up in Yorkshire, to, to then find myself at Sandhurst with people from all walks of life, but, but suddenly feeling that I'd, I'd arrived home because I was with people I could relate to easily, even though I'd been through Welbeck College, which is the technical arm uh, school, sort of sixth form finishing school for people going into the technical arms of the officer corps in the army. I didn't really find I had anybody who was a bit like me. In fact, they thought I was posh and from a sort of privileged background, even though I grew up in a caravan. Um, so that was sort of all then, getting to Sandhurst. Now, um, like you, I, I'm very blessed to meet fascinating people. Um, I spend a lot of my time in America, around Europe, working with CEOs and top teams, off-sites, one-to-one coaching, uh, public speaking. Um, and and the podcasts have been an absolute joy. I'm on, uh, I think you were talking about, you've done about 18 episodes um, I've sort of stuck at it, no, no better than you, but just stuck at it for a number of years and done about 300 now. My wife and I are going to do episode 300 and review what we've learned about those 300 episodes and those 300 people and, and, and many hundreds of thousands of hours of coaching. Uh, and I love what I do. I'm living my life on purpose. I'm in my 60s um, and I I'm consider myself very blessed, but I've been through some highs and lows. Um, and, a, and an interesting career in the army. I, I, I won't spend long on it, but um, began in the Royal Corps of Signals, um, had some fascinating jobs. I did a secondment with the Scots Guards just after the Falklands War. I was a platoon commander with them, so they'd all been to war, my platoon. And my colleagues, uh, we were based in Cyprus, which was a great place to be, um, where I did the mountain marathon and set the world record there. Um, and then things like Airborne, Selection did that, got my wings and my maroon berry. Um, almost joined the Scots guys, almost joined three para, but um, but thought that wasn't really me. But then found home because I was I knew I wanted to be in the infantry rather than the signals. Was uh, as a Yorkshireman was the what is now the Yorkshire Regiment, but the Green Howards. So I became after ten years a Green Howards acting major with Richard Dannett, Lord Dannett, as my commanding officer. So great example. Peter Inge, I was his ADC when he was head of the army. Staff college, um, instructor at Sandhurst, um, commanding my company, a war armoured fighting vehicle company in Bosnia, went to tours in Ireland, counterterrorism, um, chief of staff of the army's largest regional brigade, 15 Northeast Brigade, uh, and then the army management consultancy services. And someone said to me, that's not a good career move, Jonathan. I said, no, no, it is, because I've done my <laughs> MBA. Um, paid for by the army and used it within the army management consultancy services, and then um, got a sort of tap on the shoulder from Price Waterhouse Coopers, and and then moved into PwC. So, and then PwC IBM, uh, managing director of a PLC uh, called Penner, which is now uh, part of a Deco, which is a huge recruitment kind of group. And uh, but then one of my clients, uh, Deanna, who I'll perhaps talk about later, Deanna Oppenheimer, who is the CEO of Barclays. She said, Jonathan, we're not recruiting, hiring your firm. We're hiring you. So why don't you go on your own? 
but oh no, no, I've always been in big institutions, big organizations. I, I, I couldn't do it on my own. I'm not really very good on my own. Actually, thank God to her, that was, you know, gosh, 12, 15 years ago, best decision ever. And since then, I've been working uh, on my own and with my wife, Lee, who also is a leadership coach as well. And we run a charity which she set up and she's the CEO of for the victims of violence against women and girls. So a really rich and full life now, um, but a, a lot of learning on the way to get here. Yeah, amazing variety of uh, of things, and and there's so much that we can uh, can pick over and talk about in there. That's for sure. And it's interesting that go on your own versus uh, under the umbrella of a corporate. When I was leaving the air force after you know, longer than you, I did 34 years, so you know I was then definitely very institutionalized. And I had a couple of friends who were saying to me, "Oh no, no, you need to you, know, you should think about going on your own and doing a portfolio thing." And I'm going, "No, no, no, I just haven't got the security for that. I don't feel comfortable in in that space." Uh, and you know, obviously, after three and a half years at Deloitte, that's exactly what I did. I went uh, went on my own, and, and like you, I, I love it. I think it's fantastic to to do. But I, I, I guess I was grateful for the the time at Deloitte where I had space to build knowledge, get some you know, more commercial experience, and all the rest of it. I think jumping straight into that would have been probably a bit of a bit of a step too far. Yeah, I mean, uh, that's good advice for for others who are thinking about that step from uh, serving in the armed forces to going into business that um, the, arm, the armed forces give us amazing skills. Like, you know, they must have invested at least £250,000 in my development, which a friend of mine said, well, that was a bit wasted on you, Jonathan, wasn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and I said, thanks, thanks, Dave. Um, but, but you know, when, when I find a client, you know, you're talking about a program for a year for someone and it might be £25,000, oh, it's a lot of money, it's a lot of money, but they're the CEO of a £60 billion <laughs> Uh, Euro business. Are you sure you don't want to develop them? I mean, if you think if you think development's expensive, try the cost of ignorance. Yeah. You know, like, uh, are, are you really going to? But they don't. They just throw them in and they go off. You go, be a CEO, and then they go, oh, it hasn't worked out very well. Well, what a surprise! Um, so, so I think for for those who are listening, who've got friends or people they know, or it's for them themselves, I found like you moving from the army. And, and luckily, I, I got myself into an army role, army management consultant. So I was using, I'm an early adopter, I was using the skills I'd learned on my Open University MBA, which I think took me two or three years while I was chief of staff of a regional brigade. And um, that was great to actually apply it in the army, sorting some of the army's problems. And then and then going into PricewaterhouseCoopers, a bit of a culture shock. Suddenly I was on my own. I didn't have a brigade headquarters to look after and you know, I don't know how many, they had sort of 50,000 troops around the Northeast or whatever. I, I suddenly, it was just me. And like, you do your own photocopying and, and you go to your own meeting and then you're you're one of a team with a with a partner, as you saw in Deloitte. Um, but it was a really good grounding. And so I learned a lot in PwC and then IBM when I was in IBM and in Penna about, and particularly running P&L. People don't understand the importance of running a profit and loss account, being that's like being in command. You have a P&L and that you're responsible for the money, for making the money, for winning it. And the armed forces have this terrible snobbishness about, oh, he's in sales. Ugh, I don't want to do anything, but I don't want to do sales. No, we're all in sales. Wake up. You've got to sell a concept, an idea. You've got to sell a product. You've got to believe what you're doing. And I've always found that that selling something I believe in worked really well. One time it was quite hard for me was when I was in uh, 
uh, a, a management consultancy, which had my bit, which was board and executive coaching, which I sort of set up, uh, management consulting, uh, outplacement, interim and recruitment. Uh, we were always encouraged to cross sell, but you have to believe in the other people who were selling their product. So for example, there was only a couple of people in the executive recruitment bit that I trusted enough. The others were just wide boys trying to make a, a quick buck and they didn't really care about the clients. And once they'd positioned them, they just dumped them and they forgot about them. But a couple of the others really cared about the whole life cycle of that person and staying with them throughout their career and just checking on them, even though they weren't being paid for it. And working with them, that was fun. I could sell that. But I found I had to believe that the client was getting the best possible service. If they weren't, I found it hard to sell another offering unless you believe in it. I don't know what, what you found in Deloitte. Yeah, I completely understand that. And, and it makes so much sense. I think the the long-term relationship piece as opposed to it being too transactional is so important in in that world. I mean, equally picking up on your on your running a PL thing, I think one of the common misconceptions for even quite senior people leaving the military is that you've run a big budget, therefore this is going to be this commercial thing is going to be relatively straightforward. And actually, of course, it's a completely different thing. I mean, the fact that I was on the Joint Forces Command Board at the uh, the end of my career with, I think we had a three and a half billion pound budget, but it was a budget. I mean, the the object is to spend it, not overspend it, but spend it wisely and, and do that. But it's not about making money. It's not about turning around and finding ways to enhance what the uh, the business does in in financial terms. And, and so, yeah, you're completely, completely different perspective for sure. And and again, that's one of the reasons it was really valuable to go to a big corporate and pick up some of those skills, I think, rather than trying to dive in and do it all on my own at the uh, the very beginning. Mm. Talking of the very beginning, um, one of the other similarities between us, you already mentioned it, was that your dad tragically died uh, when you were very young, and uh, as did mine. I mean, mine died of natural causes, yours obviously was killed, I know, at the... Um, but I'm just interested in motivations. And before you turned up at Sandhurst, no doubt with your ironing board in hand, as everybody must do, the uh, uh, what motivated you? How did you prepare to jump into the army and, and set yourself up? Yeah, really good question, Bob. And, and, and I think it was a sort of an upbringing and a real juxtaposition uh, and paradox of, on the one hand, military service, serve to lead. My father, uh, and people won't see this on the podcast, but um, there's my father's naval cap and there's pictures of him climbing into the cockpit of his fast jet that he flew. So he died saving the lives of two other pilots, the one whose aircraft he was test flying and the co-pilot who went with him, who he got out and he lived, but my father died. Um, So there was all that huge legacy and responsibility in my mother's eyes, for me, the youngest, she wanted Graham to go into the Navy, but he, my eldest brother, he became a, a, the president of the British Plastic Surgeon, so very eminent, and he's still alive, though had a terrible uh, situation, but that's another story, uh, not for today, where he almost was killed by somebody else. And uh, then my other brother, David, has died two years ago, sadly, of metastatic cancer. So, but he was never he was never into anything military. You know, Dave did drugs and art. That was his thing. And and so I showed an interest in always you know, Captain Commando and magazines about military and daring do and trying to know more about the father I never knew. And so, yeah, he was up on a pedestal, my father. So I sort of thought, how can I be like this mystical, heroic King Arthur kind of figure? And that's what officers do. So 
So I was very motivated to be like him. Not only that, but my uncle was um, a Navy uh, pilot as well, killed at age 29, flying with the inventor of a brand new helicopter for the forces where the blades fell off uh, and they plummeted to the ground from a very high altitude and both died in this huge fireball in Boscombe Down. So that was suddenly a family tragedy. So he died. My father had died in his in his jet through a fault in manufacturing. British manufacturing of aircraft was poor at the best of times. A bit like in D-Day, if you remember, when the tanks were rolling off the landing ships, the wheels were falling off because they were so badly made. We've never really lost that one. Um, so he was killed by, both of them killed by manufacturing faults. Um, though in those days, you never sued anybody. You know, you just got paid your £10 or a month pension and they go, there you are, you know, well done. Now these days, you know, everybody be suing for millions. But in those days, they didn't do that. They just accepted it and it was bad luck. And, and my grandfather, the same. Um, he was inventor for the war office during the war, flying from the Isle of Man uh, to visit my other uncle, who was a pilot, uh, a pilot in the RAF or doing one of the roles in the RAF. And it was his 21st and he was flying to see him. And the whole aircraft flew into a hillside in the Lake Districts and everybody on board died, killing my grandfather as well. And then on the other side, my grandfather was in the New Zealand Machine Gun Corps in the First World War. And then we had uh, grandfather George, who was in um, the Honorable Artillery Company in A Company of the 1st Battalion. And again, terrible injuries that he sustained in Passchendaele and and never really was quite the same after. So there's, there's all that. But then there was a Quaker side to the family, which is all about peace and, and not war fighting. Um, but my mother decided rather to become Quaker. She became Church of England by inclination. So there was this belief in service to country and uh, king, queen, whoever it might be at the time, and and doing good for others and for the community, which meant that I wanted to go to Santist and be an inspiring leader. Um, but I hadn't had much of a role model because my father wasn't alive. I didn't know how to be um, – you know, be the man of the house. So Graham had to grow up quickly. He was about uh, uh, six years older than me. He had to grow up and be the sort of the man of the house at the age of nine when his dad was killed. So that's a, a bit of the story about what motivated him to get me uh, to start my army career. I was very motivated about it. I wanted to be an officer. And then the final thought I had was my mother, you know, people said to her, you know, when my father was alive, you know, Paul is the top pilot in the Navy. He'd won all sorts of awards. He'd flown at Farnborough with the display team. He was, you know, a pilot of, of your caliber, Bob. And they said, you know, he'll, he's going to be an admiral. Admiral Sir Paul and Lady Perks, they, they, they could see it already. You know, even at the age of 33, he is destined to the top. And suddenly he was dead. But in her mind, she still wanted to be Lady Perks. So she went, you know, when I yawned at table aged 16, she'd go, Jonathan, generals don't yawn. <laughs> like, like, as if there was this, this, this very uh, repeated pattern of, you know, you're going to be a general one day. Now I didn't, I became a major and I left and did a different career, which I'm very glad I did. But there was this pressure, subtle pressure to go for the highest uh, abilities to serve queen and country and potentially to die for your country if need be. 
Yeah, it's really interesting. I mean, especially as you've got so much kind of tragedy in the military side. Um, in many ways, I would have thought your mum might have been, no, 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 do anything else. Don't go near the military. Um, so it was quite surprising in some ways that she was uh, was pushing you to do that. Well, well, one interesting, yeah, one interesting point you say that, Bob. Um, when I was at Santos, age 18, uh, we had no money. Absolutely. We were poor as church mice. And of course, I was alongside guards officers and cavalry officers who had huge private incomes. Uh, and, and they'd uh, later on invite me to their grouse moors and things like that. But by that stage, I got an army career and a bit of a salary. But at that one, she bought me a little brown mini, a brand new brown mini, one I wanted with wide tires and extensions. You know, it was really cool. I was so cool at 18, <laughs> having my own car. And um, I only learned a few years later that she'd said to her best friend, Eve, she said, well, I- I'm pretty convinced Jonathan will be killed quite early in his life. So I'd like him to have some nice things before he dies. Good Lord. Wow. Ooh. That's amazing, isn't it? Because she'd, she'd become fatalistic. Yeah, she'd yeah, lost yeah. her husband, her brother-in-law, her, her father-in-law. Her own father had been you know, very badly damaged from the, the trenches and the HAC. He was left for two days. By a, the Germans attacked him and they had a fight out in a trench in a shell hole. Everybody was dead but George. And he sort of woke up two days later and dragged himself back, having been smacked over the head and was never quite the same ever since. So so she was imagining that although she wanted me to go and be a leader and be an officer, she did expect that I wouldn't live very long. Wow. Fascinating. That really is interesting. Yeah. That's really given me pause for thought, actually, in terms of of how she would handle that. Because I, I had I was a very good friend of mine who, when uh, we were in the midst of Afghanistan and the bad times in Afghanistan when we were losing quite a lot of people, uh, her son, who's uh, in his late twenties, early thirties now, was at that point was toying with going into the army, and she was saying, "Please, can we, what can you do? Can you persuade him not to do that?" And I and I remember saying, you know, a lady I'd known for a very long time, I said, "Look, why would I do that? I love the military. He's got to throw, plow his own furrow here. Yeah, and of course, it's it's got risk. I mean, everything's got risk, but you know, if that's what he wants to do, then good for him. You know, it's a it's a great career. But I could mm. see I could see a lot of similar conversations happening with uh, sort of parental gateways into into the military at that point where there was a bit of a view that this is a really, really bad thing to go and do. Um, not least because it wasn't just the people getting killed, it was all the ones getting injured. And, and we talked about that off air a little bit beforehand about the scale of injuries that some people have had to endure. And, and by and large, men and, and by and large, very young men who've then got 40, 50, 60 years of life left with obviously some pretty traumatic injuries. So I can sort of see why that would, uh, would play out that way. Change tack slightly though. You, you did the army thing. You have gone all the way through to running the inspiring leadership podcast. So having done the inspiring leader as you're in the military to then turn that into what you now do, how have you changed, adapted, shaped your leadership style across your career from military through to commercial, through to running your own thing and doing the coaching you do now? Mm, that's a really good question, Bob. And it, it's gone a bit of a complete circle. I, I only think that as you've asked me that. I began in Quaker meeting rooms with my grandmother. And people would, there would be no vicar. It would be sort of self-managed group where people would be moved to say what's on their mind. And no one would interrupt them. No one would insult their thinking. 
and you'd be interested in what they think and you'd listen to people intently. And there was a humility and a humanity and uh, an understatement about it. And I end up finding myself now listening and coaching people using the thinking environment designed by Nancy Klein, a Quaker, who came and gave the commencement address at my daughter's uh, head girl year when she was head girl at the Mount School in New York. And, and Nancy's had a profound impact on my style of coaching, um, which is about how far can you go in your thinking before I interrupt you and think for you? And then how much further than that can you go? And then how much further than that can you go in your thinking and your ownership of your own life and your situation, your accountability, and me being your thinking partner to allow you to do your finest thinking and being in dialogue with you, but each of us being interested on building on the other's best thinking. So, so that's from the start to the finish. But in the middle, age 18, you go into a command and control environment in the military. Now, you and I know from, particularly when you think about it as a pilot and a fast jet in the Royal Air Force, it couldn't be just command and control. You had to think for yourself at speed, incredibly quickly. You had to make a whole series of multiple calculations in your brain and you lived with the consequence, or you died, as some of your good friends did die, as their aircraft broke apart, or they made a miscalculation and they crashed and died. So uh, there is this um, unfortunate view that the military is just, oh, you just get told what to do. Of course, when you're doing drill, left turn, right turn, halt, salute, all this kind of stuff, and you had to follow those, so that you started to work as one team from this loose collection of um, disreputable, uh, disinterested, disorganized civilians into a molded group, normally against the instructor and the and the non-commissioned officer, the captain and the non-commissioned officer, which I then went back to Santos to be that instructor. Uh, but that's a story in itself, which was a bit of a revelation for me later on. We can talk about that perhaps. But so there was that early stage of learning command and control and how to organize things and discipline and administration and bureaucracy and timings and discipline and and sticking to things and eating your meal within 10 minutes and then being back out in a different form of dress on parade. Why were you doing all that? Well, you understand later on. And now, as you and I rush out, walk the dog, take the wife to the station and then come back for the podcast, you realize you can achieve all sorts of things very quickly. And it's just second nature. It's just others are all over the place. So went from command and control to then as I moved into the airborne uh, initiative kind of concept, um, also uh, uh, armored infantry and mobile infantry operations, where you had to, as you landed on the ground, whatever the rank if that person saw the enemy, he'd say, take cover. And you wouldn't go, well, do you know, I'm the major here. I'm in charge. Because you're just taking a bullet. You, you just follow the instructions from whoever gave those instructions. So there is this, this fallacy that the military is just blinded to command and control. They don't think for themselves. It's quite the opposite, much more than in business. This idea maneuver warfare, uh, airborne initiative, thinking for yourself um, is paramount. But there is a theme running through about respect, rank, authority, uh, military discipline, and passing judgment on people, things like that, which I saw when I was assistant to the head of the army, 
and some of the decisions that he made, but I was also aware of what was going on in his own life. And I thought, hmm, that's interesting. No hypocrisy there. Um, so so it was quite interesting to see that full range. Came out, joined PricewaterhouseCoopers and then IBM Business Consulting, and, and suddenly came across this world of coaching. Now, this must be, goodness now, what I've been out now, about 20, 25 years ago, they were using this technique called coaching. And I went, I've come home. This is great. I love this. You actually are interested in the other person. You're asking them questions. You're getting them to think for themselves, take ownership. What else? You know, how far can they go in their thinking? And and the respecting and listening to a whole group of people and then ultimately making a decision. Um, and so that that sort of coach approach to leadership. And now in meeting Stephen Covey and his latest book, which I do love, Trust and Inspire, which I commend to you, Bob, and I'm sure you'll enjoy it. It'll be very much coming home for you too and to those listening. Um, uh, I was with Stephen yesterday uh, in London, and obviously his father did the Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, if anybody had done development, but if those who haven't, they wouldn't have heard of him. But very, um, very much someone who changed the whole generation, the way we think about things. And then the speed of trust and trust and inspire. Trust is is really high on the agenda now, that, that giving trust to other people, smart trust, where you're not naive. I've been stung badly, lost £300,000 to uh, property fraudsters by over-trusting someone, even though I'd done some due diligence, who was utterly duplicitous and probably a white-collar psychopath um, who ended up in jail. Uh, we The group did get this woman who'd defrauded us all for a few million into jail, but we never got our money back. But you can be naive. Uh, you, you need to be smart in in what you trust. And uh, But that style of trust and inspire is really completing the loop back to where I first began my life, really. Yeah, really interesting. Yeah, I mean, actually, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People is my favourite book. I think it's absolutely brilliant. As a, uh, as a, if you've got one book you're going to read, then that that's the book I recommend to people because I think it is, uh, yeah, it is so good, and it's great that you got to meet Stephen because it's a, uh, uh, and it's also lovely that he's followed in his father's footsteps to a degree, isn't he? Yeah, with, uh, yeah. with doing what he did. So it's uh, super. And I, I think your your comments about kind of authoritarian leadership in the military is so true. I mean, there's such a strong perspective that. You know, that's what you do. You shout and and therefore people say jump and it's how high, you know, and there is a place for that. And, and, and undeniably there's a place for that. But across all of the, uh, all of the services, I think, you know, more and more it's about, uh, you know, inspiration requirement as opposed to just barking orders at people because people think they've got brains, they're capable in many instances, certainly in the Air Force, the people that work for me were more qualified and you know, educationally more qualified than I was. And you know these are you know, the, the people you need to convince to do something, not uh, because they and they respect you and believe in you, and and you've got that kind of right relationship. If you haven't got that, then you're hiding to nothing. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think a build that you'd notice as well is that we must be careful. Language, words create worlds. So you know the language you use is very important. And and with the pair of us now being in business and not in the military, we have to be very careful not to use military language. Because it can be too martial, too, you know, grabbing, seizing, beating, holy, all this kind of quite it's quite violent language if you're not careful. <clears throat> Very and, true. And people get confused between inspiring leaders and charismatic leaders. Now, you know, Donald Trump is charismatic. 
Um, lots of people follow him across the whole of America, but he's not inspiring in in what I would call inspiring leader with high trust and reliability and telling the truth and this kind of stuff. He's the he's the antithesis. He's he's an expiring leader. He draws life out of you, but yet he's charismatic. And so I think you can have people who are very quiet and very unassuming, but they are actually truly inspiring leaders. And often some of the the good CEOs that I work with are, are deeply introverted. And it's quite hard for them to get up there on stage and speak. They don't really want to do it, but they'll do it because that's what's required. And they are inspiring. And they have you know, strong character and values. Whereas you've got charismatic people like Boris and Liz Truss, who are out there large in the life with great sound bites, like the I've just been listening to Empire, which is a great uh, podcast series. And they're talking about the Bolsheviks and that they were dealing with Russian peasants. And so they they couldn't read or write, so they used little mantras and little sayings, and you know, and so the kulaks are lazy people, and you know we must kill them all. And um, uh, I think you've got to be careful with charismatic people who who actually have no substance to them. It's all fluff and image, but behind there, a bit like the Wizard of Oz, there's a little man standing on a, a, a you know a wooden platform speaking through a loud hailer. Um, but there's there's no real substance and sustainability to that. Does that resonate for you? Yeah, it absolutely does. I think it's really interesting some of the names you throw in there as well. I mean, it, it, as you talked about Donald Trump, what what I was thinking about was how interesting it is how that sort of charismatic style of leadership how far it can take you. I mean, you know, love him or hate him, he has got tens of millions of Americans, you know, ordering hundreds of millions of Americans, I suspect, actually. Who are devotees? They you know they think he's fantastic, uh, and that's kind of beyond the first term in office. Looking to where he's now going to go, so it is. It is really interesting, isn't it? How uh, no matter whether you, I mean, I, I'm not a fan. Uh, you know, I don't don't support many of the things he uh, he subscribes to, and I think that's very true for a lot of people outside the United States. But he clearly is carrying an awful lot of people with him. It just in, in Boris Johnson is another very good example of that, where you know, despite everything, he has still got a huge following of people who would still say we'll have him back tomorrow, which, which again I personally find quite extraordinary. You know, given some of the things that have that have happened and the things that have gone on, and, and that are and the, the, not the Daily Mail story side of this, the stuff that is actually you know demonstrably true and is, is evidenced in, in, in his behaviour, which is is bizarre. So I'm, I'm certainly with you that I think you know you want to be much more in the kind of uh, balance that charisma with with the inspiration piece as well to uh, to take you there. Talking of people, then that takes a very neat segue into my next question. Actually, is around role models for you, um, you know, and people that have most impressed you across your career, you know, alive or dead, but I mean the uh, you know the, the ones that you really really resonate with. Mm. Well. well um might have mentioned before my dyslexia, which meant that I didn't read very much until later in life when I came across this new invention, the audio book and the podcast. And and I have been hoovering up to catch up with those early years, this, this fascination with learning about uh, spectrums of history, financial, you know, the crashes in 2008 and things like that, books on that and uh, the politics of uh, three P's, you know, post-truth, populism, and polarization, uh, revenge of power, a great book by Moses Nayam. And so as a dyslexic, I, I can remember a lot of stuff that I've listened to. 
And so I was out on the walk with the dog this morning and I was, um, you know, l- listening to another past, which might be about, you know, exercise with uh, an anthropologist talking about how we were when we squatted as, as, as um, you know, tribesmen and, and why squatting is good for you and this kind of stuff. And it's a whole range of things from health, well-being and stuff like that. So, so I've learned a lot from some great leaders like Colin Powell, who my um, my ex-father-in-law lived next door to Colin Powell, my ex-wife. They all were great friends and they went round in each other's houses when they were both brigadiers together. So he, fabulous book, you know, it worked for me in peace and in war uh, or um, was, was his great book. It worked for me. So there's people like that. But then the actual people that I served with, I, I think undoubtedly a psychologist would have had a field day with me. And I'll talk perhaps later about doing the Hoffman Institute program, seven day program, which was life-changing for me and for someone who is a course junkie and has been on every possible course I could do when I was at PricewaterhouseCoopers and IBM and um, in the army, I, you know, uh, I was always an early adopter having done a course, but um, I, I was very lucky that I was looking in a way for inspiring leaders who were like my father or people I could look up to and admire who have fine qualities of character and trust and integrity and inspiration. And so early in my career, I um, I served with the Scots Guards and there was there, there was uh, General John Kisley who got a military cross on Mount Tumbledown, quite a character. Um, not not right up there with the ones I'd, you know, he, he's a man of uh, a great talent, but also quite a, uh, you know, a Marmite kind of character. Some loved him, some didn't take him so much. But then, yeah, General Sir Mike Scott um, and uh, General Ian Mackay Dick, they were all very fine Scots Guards commanders who'd been in the Falklands War. But then I got this wonderful job uh, as a spy working for GCHQ in 14 Electronic Warfare Signal Regiment based on the east-west German border, taking my little troop. Great job. I mean, complete independence. Take my troop to go and in the middle of the night with uh, red torches, get ourselves into some forest set up and start listening to the Russians on the Magdeburg training area where the whole a whole core of Russian tanks and artillery operating and then firing missions. Uh, one time we came into the forest and we set up within you know, an hour and we started to listen and, and interpret what the Russians were doing. And one of the guys moved the cursor because you had to transpose them from Russian to uh, English maps. They weren't the same. Their map system was different. And they moved the cursor over exactly over the crosshairs were right over our location. I said, what's that? said, it's a far mission for a Russian division, sir. I said, I hope that's not real. So said, no, no, it's an exercise, but they're letting us know that they know we're here. I said, but when he came in here an hour ago, I said, yeah, but they've got their electronic warfare kit and they've got their direction finding. So we were listening on them and they were listening on us. But the commanding officer I had there, who was a truly inspiring leader, still is a, a good friend of mine, General John Stokoe, and John had served undercover with Special Branch in Northern Ireland, uh, done, done undercover Special Forces work. Um, he'd been in Malaya in campaigns there where he got malaria and uh, went on to be sort of Deputy Commander-in-Chief Land, I think. Just just fabulous guy, but personable, um, loved his fitness. He and I loved orienteering. We were into our map reading, and so that was a common bond. But he just inspired me and believed in me. And he'd also 
done a secondment to the um, Grenadier Guards as a young officer where he got in, in Ireland and there was a shootout with the IRA and lots of um, hairy moments for him. He was also tortured by the IRA. The IRA killed his special branch operator, took him prisoner, uh, took him across the border into the south and beat him with iron bars for two days, shackled naked to the floor. And um, he was about to die. And he just was praying in a way that the next IRA guy who came into the barn just put a bullet in his brain because he just was, his eye sockets were broken, his limbs were broken. He was just a bloody mess on the floor. But his Grenadier Guards platoon heard about it and completely illegally hired a white van, got across the far side, released him, killed the IRA terrorist who'd been beating him to death and brought him home. But wow. he's never quite been the same. He still has flashbacks to horrors he's seen when the IRA have blown up a supermarket and they were trudging through blood and it was all over the walls and things. And it was, it was, it was civilians' bodies that he was walking past. So he's had a huge experience and PTSD, but, but such a father figure and inspiration to me even now. And it was lovely doing some events where I got him to come and share his wisdom and experience with the CEO and boards of different teams I was working with. So he was fabulous, sort of missing father I never had. And, and the same again with John Griffin, when I was adjunct of Second Division Signal Regiment, which was a great job in York, um, and working with uh, people like General Sir Mike Rose, who was our divisional commander, and Murray Naylor, who got me to the Scots Guards. Um John XSES, um, troop commander, again, like uh, John Stoker, John Griffin, very understated, very modest, but boy, you didn't mess with him. I remember there was one very arrogant, big, burly guy, um, Stevenson, who came in and was just really sort of arrogant and a bit cocky, very clever sort of guy. And John suddenly flat, you could see his eyes flash and he said, don't you ever speak to me like that again, or I will chop you off below the legs. And he suddenly saw this go, oh, and he realized that he just overstepped it. But John would get out there, a bit like John Stoko, who do the escape and evasion exercise we did all the way across Germany. John Stoko, he got malaria on the, the first day that we were living in the woods, wet and stuff like that in tiny bashes. And he said, I said, the doctor says you're going to come, come off the exercise. He said, no, give me a black bin bag. I will sweat this malaria out, and then I'm going on the run with my team of three soldiers because I must lead by example. I'm the commanding officer. I've got to lead by example. And he did. He sweated out for two days. He was shivering and shaking with all his malaria, probably not the right thing to do. But the soldiers loved him because he was going through exactly the same deprivations they were. He went through the resistance to interrogation training because we were prone to capture troops like the SAS because we were in, in we were electronic warfare spying on the Russians. And then John Griffin, the same. If the soldiers went out on a long march, he would do exactly the same. And, and he, would, he would lead by example. So I just, um, I just think he's a, a really great guy. Uh, the other person I want to call out was Richard Dannett, General the Lord Dannett, mm -hmm. uh, Chief of the, uh, the General Staff, who you probably know. Yeah, very well. Richard, yeah. great commanding officer, great uh, inspiration. So at a very young age, we knew he was going to be either the head of the army, a bishop, or a politician. And in his own way, he's probably been all three. But we knew that when he was a, you know, lieutenant, young lieutenant colonel. And and he gave me the screen company as a young acting, I don't know, what was I, 37 year old or something. He, he, he promoted me to a major. He said, you've got this immobile screen company with 
the, the mortars and the anti-tank and the recce troop do as you wish, you know, design it, make it interesting. So believed in me. And also at the same time, he could challenge me. He goes, Jonathan, you're, you're a bit too intense with your peer group. You don't need to compete against them so much. Well, actually, you did in the battalion like that because they'd all worked out who was going to be the commanding officer. And I transferred into them late in the day and upset a lot of people who saw their natural place as commanding officer in the pecking order. And suddenly there's this, this, um, this new joiner who'd come from being an instructor at Santos. Who did he think he was? Uh, wasn't a proper Green Howard. He hadn't been there from the beginning since birth. And, uh, and so Richard spotted that, tried to make life easier. But he's remained a friend since, and he was on episode 200. We're about to do episode 300. And then finally, switching from the, those three men in the military to, in business, uh, Deanna Oppenheimer, um, uh, the, the CEO of Barclays Retail Bank and then Barclays Europe. Great, inspiring uh, woman. I even got my daughters to do some work experience uh, with members of Barclays when they were in their about 18 years old. And they just noticed the respect and the charisma that she had, general charisma as well as inspiration, um, when she came into the room. And she in turn introduced me to her nephew, Matt Oppenheimer, who's probably one of the finest CEOs I work with. And uh, uh, along with Srini Gopalan, who's the CEO of Deutsche Telekom in Germany. But Matt's the CEO of uh, Remitly Global, who, who look after immigrants who are sending money back to their loved ones. And he's, created in 11 years from nothing with his co-founder, Josh, a $5 billion uh, business with people all over the world and truly learning leader who's prepared and has the humility to learn and grow. So some great people. Yeah, fantastic examples. I think the uh, I mean, that leading by example thing, not, not that I'm necessarily advocating the uh, sweat out the malaria and carry on persisting through what was clearly quite a challenging time. But I think the general principle of leading by example is a really, really important one. Uh, and I think the learning leader thing as well I think it is, is another one that I've seen so often demonstrated positively and also negatively where people think they've got nothing else to learn or they've, uh, you know, they've done all this before and the, uh, and that you know, they're not prepared to listen or even hear the views of the, you know, others in the room. And I think that's one of the skills that good leaders definitely need to develop is to be able to understand the character types of the people they've got there and leverage the best out of them, even if they're quite different to them. And particularly, I think if you are a reasonably, um, I suppose, gregarious, outgoing, punchy, uh, extrovert type of leader, that's harder to do because inevitably you have to rein yourself back in very significantly in order to turn around and get to the introverts who are, uh, you know, sat the other side of the table from you potentially. Mm. But it's a, it's a critical area to, uh, to develop. You're exactly right, Bob. And um, I was thinking when you talked about the learning leader and, and those who, who don't think they have more to learn, this, it was a very good Harvard Business School article, uh, but the, the three things I took away from it were three great questions to ask any leader. Um, which is uh, to check if they've got the three hums. They didn't talk about this. The three hums come from Roger, uh, Professor Roger Steer, who was a, a, a visiting professor like I was at CAS, um, now City, London City University. But um, uh, the three hums are humility, humanity, and humor, very important in, in leaders. And the test of whether they have that is question one is, when was the last time you personally were dead wrong? Completely wrong. You got it wrong. When was the last time? Now, hopefully you get the kind of leaders that I respect and my go, Jonathan, 
frequently every day I make mistakes um, and I, I try and rectify them as soon as I realize. This, uh, the ones that worry me, like one did, well, no, I really, I really find it a problem to think of a time I was wrong. It could have been 1986, but that really wasn't my fault. It was, uh, it was somebody <laughs> else. But, but I suppose I could take a bit of, bit of, bit of the blame for that. And so, you know, you got a problem there. Question two: um, How quickly did you realise you were wrong and rectify the situation? That's always an interesting one. And the third one is. How quickly did you make amends with those that you'd caused problems for? And did you apologize for being wrong or um, mistreating people, whatever it might be? And again, that's interesting. What you mean you, I don't apologize. That shows weakness. You know, I just keep going. Keep going. Don't never look back. Keep looking forward. Don't be looking in the rearview mirror. You just got to get on. And that worries me as well. Yeah, I, I, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I, I think the I totally get everything you've just said. I do think though there is an important element of I talked about forks in the road on um, either on a podcast or a LinkedIn post recently, where you know for me at least, once I've made a decision, I'm going down a particular fork in the road. I, I try to be no regrets. I don't want to go back and and you know look back and wish wish I'd done something differently mm-hmm. and go for the what ifing and all the rest of it. I, but at the same time, I totally get what you're saying that if you've made a mistake and you know it's actually something you should actually uh, look to um, make amends for, then absolutely admitting it and going back and apologising for it and and you know taking the right people back with you is really important. And I, I, you get huge amounts of respect for that as well. Every time I've done that, I found that you know people are a often surprised and b you know generally the long term benefit of that is massive. Uh, you know, if you're uh, if you're genuinely have got enough humility to know that you know, you're not always right, mm. and you won't be. I mean, who can be? It's impossible to uh, to be in that place unless you're Donald. Donald's never wrong. <laughs> yeah, I think pretty much and he's always right. Trust actually, she's coming back and telling us it was not her fault at all that the economy crashed and uh, everybody's mortgages have gone up. It was nothing to do with her. It was, it's a peculiar trait it's of the politicians, blob, isn't, isn't it? it? The blob. That's the excuse. Mm. The, the the civil service blob that they're out to get them. I think it is an interesting trait of politicians, isn't it? That is unfortunate because often you see, I mean, on radio interviews is a good example, or TV interviews where they just refuse to answer the question, you know, and that, that really winds me up. And I actually think it's very detrimental to their own mm. um, the image they create of themselves, especially when you're effectively asking them, as you know, what did you have for breakfast this morning? But that's not the point. This is what I want to talk about. You know, you know well, hang on. You know, it's crazy to do that. You might as well just turn around and uh, and not be on the interview unless if you're if you're going to have such a, a vehement opposition to you having a sensible conversation about something. Uh, but it is it is oddly a, a very political trait, sadly. Yeah, and they're so different from people like uh, you'd probably know another one, General Sir Rupert Smith, who I had on the yeah, yeah, early podcast. Yeah. And uh, I, I talked to him about, you know, often people look for the great man or the great woman who knows everything. He said, no, no, quite the opposite. He said, I remember going to a big shape when he was Deputy Supreme Allied Commander briefing room. And they went, oh, General, you're here. You know, what do you think about this? And he sat back in one of the chairs at the back of the auditorium, put his feet up on the Guys, he said, I haven't got a clue. What do you think? <laughs> you know, I don't know. I, I haven't got a view on that yet, but tell me more. And I, yeah. I think that kind of... It's okay not to know, and people expect you, you know, that the poorer leaders that I've come across, 
um, who are the micromanagers who do not do the trust and inspire. They do the command and control. They expect to go in a deep dive and you know everything about everything. It's not good. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the other interesting traits that I think is indicative of good leadership is where you actually think you might have strong views on something. You might have a lot of ideas about how you want something to be done, but you're going into a, um, a, a room full of or with a bunch of people who you want to tap into their knowledge. Actually, the, the classic, and I said it on your podcast, you know, it's the, uh, um, you know, you've got two ears and one mouth, use them in proportion. And listening first and then talking is such an important thing to do. Because if you don't do that and you go in as a leader, and particularly in a, if you're a relatively strong authoritarian style of leader or perceived as that way, then of course you just shut the room down because people will go, well, I'm not interested. He's not interested in my views where actually what you want to do is you want to cultivate their views and then turn around and add those to the mix and then choose the best path ahead. And if you don't listen first and you don't listen you know, effectively to, uh, to what's being said and you've kind of preordained the outcome, uh, then it's a, it's a horrendous trait to, uh, to have, I think, in a leadership role. Yeah, it's called the hippo, the highest paid person's opinion. And if, <laughs> if the hippo goes first, everybody else follows him or her and they, they all agree with the hippo. So the hippo must go last and listen to everybody else. Love it. Yeah, I've not, uh, not heard that. That's good. The On traits, leadership traits, uh, let's just drill into that a little bit. So you've got a huge amount of experience of, uh, of looking at people here. What, what traits do you think are the most important? Not, and not just things that are important for you personally, but things that you look for in others. Yeah. Well, of course, you know, Language is so important on this particular topic. Uh, I've uh, qualified in many psychometrics. Uh, again, part of my sort of being a, a course junkie is to get overqualified in every possible thing to do with leadership and coaching and psychometrics. But um, in all the different psychometrics I came across, and we, of course my wife and I have designed our own psychometric now, the Inspiring Leadership Psychometric, um, which sort of assesses an individual and then looks at the team, and then you get 360. We found from the research that we did with a wonderful man, Dr. Ruven Baron, who designed the EQI, the um, Emotional Quotient Inventory. Ruven fought in five Arab-Israeli wars. And now that's more pertinent than ever, isn't it? And saw a lot of battle shock and things like that. And, and he's um, Ruven's still alive and a, a real character and great friend of ours. And um, we we were really interested in what makes high-performing leaders, what makes inspiring leaders, how do we know high-performing leaders and teams, what kind of qualities. So we used a, a compass with a sort of North Star for integrity, which is the moral, the moral compass is a very key part of it. And then seven other components, which is a bit like a, a Norman church. If you notice, have three keystones, the, the main one and the two side ones, the, the main one being at the, at the northern point, top of the arch is that MQ, moral intelligence question, how people can know what you stand for and what you went for for. But then to the left of that is legacy, stewardship, legacy, leaving things better than you found them. And then to the right of that, this concept of your purpose quotient, your spiritual quotient, some people call it, but what, what gives your life meaning and purpose? You know, the two most important days in your life, uh, Mark Twain said, was the day you were born and the day you found out why. I found out why when I met my father's fellow pilots, including the man who'd lived when my father had died. And that's a whole story 
in itself for another day. But the point was, that was the moment I found my meaning and purpose in my life. And I've been living a very purposeful life, living my life on purpose since then. So those three, I think, are foundational to a successful leader and principles that I try and aspire to live myself and know when I come unstuck and when I get back on track. Um, and then the other ones, um, one that often not in many leadership models, but should be health quotient. Um, you and I were talking earlier about people with PTSD and medical discharges and things like that, but looking after your mental and your physical health, it's uh, those are very key topics. And I, work very hard as I did this morning before this podcast, you know, working in zone two on my indoor cycle, taking up the front wheel and sticking on a roller, uh, whatever the weather and the rainstorms outside after the dog walk, I could, I could then do some zone two training and I've got a personal trainer and I have a set diet and that kind of stuff. So health is very important. Um, next one round is emotional intelligence. So, uh, you know, it's, uh, IQ accounts for 5% of people's success, whereas EQ accounts for 30% of people's success. So emotional and social intelligence, reading the room, reading other people, reading yourself, reading the what's going on in your company. Um, and then uh, uh, sort of CQ, which is sort of cultural intelligence. This this team, picking out what's going on in the team, the culture, the diversity, quality, inclusion, that, that, that whole area is in there. Resilience is, is such an important one, but not overdoing the resilience so it actually affects your health and your health goes down because you're just being stubborn and keeping going. Uh, and then the, the the final of the eight that I find so useful is brand, reputation, image, and BQ. So what do people say about you, Bob Judson, when you're not in the room? That's your brand, yeah. not what you'd like it to be. No, I use exactly that expression quite a lot when I do uh, do facilitation for the likes of Deloitte University and things where we talk about personal brand, because it is a concept that actually a lot of people don't get, You know, that they don't recognize that actually – you know, you have one, whether you, whether you purposefully build it, you know, which is what you should be doing, or if you don't, then you have one anyway, because it is exactly that is what people are talking about you when you're, uh, when you're not there. And, and so trying to make sure you shape that in the direction that's useful to you is clearly very important. Yeah. Yeah. No, so those, those are, you know, there's, there's many out there. There's, there's thousands upon thousands of models, but I, I find that compass is quite a useful way of just checking in with yourself and checking with the team. And and finding when when you're overdoing over because you can over index on certain things, and and so you can be over resilient, and then you're sort of stubborn, and you know you might end up dying on Mount Everest because you should have turned back at three o'clock, but you're going no no I'm going to push on and it might get there by five. Great, you've got to the summit, but you've got to get back down to the next camp. Yeah, and that's yeah. when Into Thin Air, which was John Krakauer's book, so many died. Uh, that year, I think eight, and actually Harry Buddha Magar, who I interviewed with, uh, who lost his legs above the knees um, to an IED, he he said his year this year seventeen people died because they over-indexed on that. They had you know obsessive summit fever. They were going for the goal. They forget that it's only it's only a part of the success. Is getting them back down. It's not ha- even half of it. It's about a third of it. Two thirds of it's coming back down. No, I think Everest is always going to generate some of those specific, very interesting challenges, isn't it, around uh, how far people push and how many people are even on the mountain and what's mm-hmm. common sense, mm-hmm. you know, what's mm-hmm. the commercial element of this versus common sense reality, which I think is a, uh, you know, is a really interesting, difficult area to, uh, to manage. Mm-hmm. And that's a great model. I mean, I like your, I like your compass model. I think that's it's a, a good way of doing it. And I think 
importantly, I mean, you mentioned it, the sort of work-life balance element of this, which is something I think a lot of leaders are not as good at as they should be. Uh, and they don't necessarily until quite late in life recognize that. They, uh, they don't think about, you know, they think they're immortal. They think they can just push on regardless. And of course, they forget two things. One is they can't. And two is actually that's the example they're setting for everyone else, which I think is is equally detrimental. I mean, if I've seen people, as you would have done as well, in particularly in the military world where they were without doubt workaholics, you know, they were very, very driven and they were very competent and extremely good at what they did. But the the pressure that put on their staff, if they had people working directly for them in sort of immediate outer office type environment, and also the example they set was one that you kind of go, do you really want that to be the example you set? And I think if you sit back and think about that and look about, look at A, what it's doing to your own well-being, and B, you know, what kind of long-term impression and legacy, which is another word you used a minute ago, you're you're leaving. You know, I think it is important for people to turn around and connect with themselves on that and go, you know, how should what should I be doing here? Um, to uh, to try and make sure that uh, you know I'm not setting that wrong example. Because because certainly in my experience, one of the things that has definitely shaped me is recognizing that people have very long memories. You know, you can, you know, if you give a bad impression to someone uh, for, and it can be completely unintentional, it can be something you just didn't even think about, but just because you were kind of in, in the moment you were very focused, angry, you know, uh, frustrated by something else that was affecting your personal mood. And you project that in, in a way that's unfortunate onto somebody else then that's the impression quite often that they're left with of you. And you, it's the age-old thing, isn't it? You never get a second chance to make a first impression, which is, is really difficult. Mm, very true, very true. Yeah, Leave reason that just a little bit. You, I mean, you've done so much coaching and podcast work, as you said, I mean, 300, I bow in respect, 300 podcasts. I mean, that's amazing when I'm on kind of 18. What do you think you've learned yourself, though, about all the people you've engaged with, and what have you, what have you taken from that? Has that shaped your own approach to what you do and in work and and kind of life in general from all those different coaching and podcast sessions? Yeah, well, I mean, first to pick up the point you made, I, I didn't um, mean it by way of bragging rights, um, because I I think I was at about podcast eighteen in the middle of the pandemic, the start of the pandemic, and I thought of giving up. I just thought, you know, I, I can't afford to do all this, the time. And I, I had someone who I was paying to prepare it all for me. So I thought I'd just stop. But actually, um, Mike Still uh, is a lovely guy who listens to these podcasts and very supportive. He said, Jonathan, don't give up. He said, these are really good. The people you get are fascinating. Keep it going. Honestly, keep going. Just it's about stamina. A bit like doing an MBA or a PhD. It's not not more than just stamina, just keeping going. And a consistent, as you're doing, you and I consistently, everyone knows that on the, the, the Monday evening, a little LinkedIn note comes in with a sort of uh, top tip, and then the podcast will come out Tuesday morning, consistently, for 300 episodes. Yeah, and uh, that's, that's a great point, because actually I get exactly the same feedback you know, at a similar sort of point. So I was talking to a guy at the weekend, he's a good friend of mine, who said, this is great. You've got to keep doing it. You know, it's fantastic. And the uh, and what's also interesting is watching on the sort of host site. The, the clearly you've got some diehards who mind drops on a on 12, 12 p.m. and a midday on a Sunday, 
and the uh, and they're clearly on a Sunday. I see this big spike as people download them, and the uh, and then obviously across the week it's variable, but it's very consistent. The uh, the kind of the download pattern, which is really quite interesting. But yeah, I I totally get that. I think it is about persistence. It's about um, and hoping eventually, obviously, you 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 get to a point where it tips into a um, uh, a much bigger deal with a bigger read listenership and all the rest of it. From from my point of view, yeah. and I know that's where you've got to, which is where where I'm aiming with it. But it, but that's an interesting point. Um, a lot of people go for numbers and likes, and you know, I've got this many followers and things. I'm just happy to make a difference to the few people who listen to. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. Uh, and actually, at my stage of life, I'm I'm not so worried about you know being a uh, you know having millions of people following it. It's about the quality that someone takes away from a tip from you or from me or from somebody else. And they go, I'm going to go and use that. That's really useful. That helps me right now. But in answer to your question, sort of learning, well, firstly, I think I said before, early adopter. So when people say to me, you know, this is a book I'd recommend to your listeners, I go, great. I've listened to it, one, or I'm going to listen to it. So I do. Um, And um, that, as I say, has has widened, broadened, deepened my knowledge. What was that famous saying that the average in America and the UK, this is a truism, the average person listens to one nonfiction book a year. That's average. So if I listen to three on a particular topic, I'm an expert. <laughs> and um, I've got a lovely guy who's a, a, a CIA hostage negotiator. He's coming up. Fascinating guy. You know, he's taken that into business now. Or, you know, Scott Prasinski, who was a NASA astronaut, who's now the CEO of a technology company. Or uh, Derek Redmond, who was the 800-meter sprinter whose hamstring snapped just as he was about to do really well in one of the Olympic races. And his father helped him hobble and make it all the way to the yeah, finish line. I, and everybody I remember was watching that. Stop it. To yeah. so meeting those kind of people... Deeply touching. You're meeting my my sort of favorite author, Stephen Covey, and spending time with him, interviewing him, or Richard Dannett, my old commanding officer. Um, I'd love to have John Stoker and John Griffin on, but they both are very humble, and one has got some some bad experiences against the IRA, and the and the other one was in the SES, and they just don't want to talk about those kind of experiences. A lot of my friends in the SES particularly now that um, they're investigating uh, some deaths of IRA terrorists again in Northern Ireland. Years later, they've had to go take their, their podcast down, come off the internet because, you know, they're, they're under threat. So there's some really interesting people. So 300 podcast guests so far, 100,000 plus hours of coaching different leaders. You know, they say 10,000 hours of purposeful practice, you become really good at it. I think now with a, over a hundred thousand hours, there's, there's, I've, I've forgotten more than I've remembered. You know, I've, I've sort of learned a lot of things and I keep learning and refreshing. So I never say stuck with the same thing. I find a new guest will make me think about, ah, like I had Oscar Trimboli who, you know, is an expert on listening and, and you know, that you listen at five levels. You listen to yourself as you're listening you listen for content, you listen for context, you listen to the unsaid, and you listen for meaning. So little things like that, that I, because I'm auditory and visual, I pick those things up and use them. 
I also get a sense of perspective. Um, uh, for example, um, there was a wonderful guy who was a U.S. Special Forces Marine, and he was on on recently, and just the horrors of what he went through in kicking doors down in Iraq and having to be the first man in there as a, I think, a major or lieutenant colonel because the Iraqis wouldn't go through the door first, so he had to do that. Um, so that's it, perspective, getting perspective and appreciating the life I have. Then I think uh, what I've learned from this is what is world class. You know, when I when I meet someone who comes across as a world class CEO or uh, a, a, a military man, you, you sort of know it, you, you sense it, and it's not the ones who are the most famous. Sometimes they're a bit too full of themselves. It's the um, the ones you're just left with um, a deep impact on you. And I've also made friends with people who I have never met, their fellow coaches like you, but they become lifelong friends. Uh, I've got one guy, Jeff Nishwitz in America, Florida. He and I co-coach each other each month. Um, uh, 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 And, you know, even the relationship with Stephen Covey, we've become close friends now. So that's great. And then referrals. These people know other inspiring leaders. And they refer them on. And they say, you, you should be my guest on Jonathan's podcast. And so I get to meet people I would never otherwise meet because I'm curious about people's life stories. I, I, if, if you're not really interested in people, doing a podcast where you interview people is awful. And you've heard them. Uh, there's a lot of podcasts. I mean, there's over 3 million podcasts. Mine is rated in the top 1.5% of podcasts in the world. But that's you know, there's, there's a whole load more that are much more famous. But You've got to be genuinely interested in people's stories. And then I think finally, it's taught me to let go of ego, judgment, and attachment to a viewpoint or something. It's a battle. It's a long-term battle. Ego pops up occasionally, and I tell you how wonderful I am or all these things I've achieved or whatever it might be, or I might be judgmental about somebody. I'm sorry, Boris, I'm judgmental about you or Donald. I, I shouldn't have been so, you know, I should be more understanding. But then you know, to be in a place of non-attachment, just notice things and be curious. But um, I had one guest who who offered me a politician who'd been, you know, in the news a lot, but I really just didn't trust his integrity. He, he was really quite duplicitous. It was quite public what he'd done. And he'd also been a bit unpleasant to people. And I just went, I, I don't want him as a recommended guest on that. So I, I have to be quite selective. I have a lot of agencies come and approach me. Oh, I've got this great person and I've got a criteria now. So I have a criteria and I send it back to them and say, it's a no from me because of this criteria. And that makes it so easy. It just, mm-hmm. Do they fit my criteria? Do they not? And if not, then I say, I say no. Does that help? Bob? Yeah, it does. Really, really, really interesting. And I think we're all like a bit judgmental. We all have a bit of ego as well. And sometimes of course it's unintentional on the ego thing, isn't it? You know, if you, if you've done a lot of stuff, I mean, I find some of the time when I do the classic for me is you'll be sitting in a room full of people at a conference or whatever in the year and right we'll do a round of introductions just you know tell us what you've done and i'll kind of reel off some of the stuff i've done and then people sit there and go oh my god you know and i've had several people it's always quite amusing actually when people say bloody glad you went after me the uh and the, but, but, but it's Bob, not you're, intentional you're a fast jet pilot it is very hard <laughs> to be humble when you're a fast jet pilot this it's is true training. there, 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 there is a bit of, of the gods. <laughs> 
But it is <laughs> it, it is interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, I never set out to do that, and the uh, and but occasionally you do have to sort of think, right? I need to row this back, otherwise it will look um, too arrogant, too much, whatever. You know, and and I think that's true for quite a lot of people. Yeah, you can't. You got to be careful not to go to the other extreme. My brother, who was, as I say, was the president of the British Plastic Surgeons and a very loved and respected surgeon until he retired after he was attacked. Um, he, um, when he meets people on a train and they go, so, so what do you do? And he goes, uh, I'm in the civil service. <laughs> they go, oh, all right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> she was. Yeah. He was in the civil service. Just it was a different part. It was the NHS. But he really doesn't want to tell them that he's a you know head and neck cancer surgeon because like, oh i've got this lump here don't know can you have a look at this or they start dropping the trousers no 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 no. it's okay that's fine thank you <laughs> yeah it's funny you know it's the other thing i find if, if people say that to me and, and, and what do you do and i sort of explain start with what i'm doing now but then i'll go you know i was in the air force for quite a long time and of course the immediate response you get from people when you say that was oh were you a pilot and I'm extremely glad I was a pilot because I always feel very sorry for people who weren't pilots. You know, you say that because it's a team game. I mean, the, the the pilots only succeed in what they do because of the everyone else that's involved. With if it's a multi-career airplane, or if it's you know the engineering team, or the air traffic controllers, or the supply officers, or the administrators, you know, the whole shooting match all comes together to make it actually work. And the uh, and that must be so annoying if you're not a pilot. Yeah, to constantly be, you know, no, actually, well, I wasn't. I was an engineer. To, I mean, look, the, the adverts <laughs> when I grew up as a young man, there was this phalanx of people, this triangle, and at yeah. the front of it was a pilot, and yeah, at the back got a few was pictures his aircraft, like that. and it said, "We support him," and yeah. and of course, it's it's inbred in you, and then you go, "No, no, no, hang on, you got, Bob, we need to do the course on humility here. <laughs> Tell them about the people who who you work with, and you're one big team. Oh yes, we're one big team." You know? <laughs> it is true. It's very true. That's, uh, that's, it's funny but fair. Who's top of your guest list that you've not had yet? Who have oh, you on your, your your number one number one wish list? No, I mean there's a, there's there's a few up there. I'll share a few. Um, Dalai Lama. I'd love to have the Dalai Lama oh, for yeah. his just for his groundedness and his his spiritual presence. Uh, Barack Obama, President Barack Obama. I think gravitas and presence. I'd love I'd love to hear some of his wisdom experience. As a fellow dyslexic, Sir Richard Branson, and, uh, you know, just all the different things he's done, quite a character is. The explorer side of me uh, and the, the one who likes to do crazy things would, would love Sir Ranulph Fiennes. I think he'd be, he'd be great. I've read his book. Uh, I recently read, uh, read Walter Isaacson's book on the, um, the bizarre uh, Elon Musk. It would be quite fun to have a chat with Elon. And then I'm always a big royalist, um, both their strengths and the weakness. So either Harry or William would be quite fun to have on. Uh, those are, those yeah. are the people I'd enjoy. You're probably about- not going to get him at the same time at the moment, that's for sure. But no. the, uh, no. Sadly. No. Yeah. yeah. No, no, that's a great list. I, I have to say, interestingly, I mean, I would, I would have a lot of similar names on the, uh, on the list as well, because I think you, you've, you've named a number of people there that I think would be fascinating to get their insights and their perspectives. Yeah. Uh, as just before we move into the kind of highs and lows uh, section, um, if you were looking back right to the beginning now and you were saying school age Jonathan, what would you be saying to school age Jonathan in terms of advice, given all you know now? Yeah, mm, interesting one. Um, I, I think I would say don't be so intense. Uh, I think there was this sort of this upbringing, this expectation on me to be a general. And so I was a man in a hurry. And, and I think it made me 
too intense and too competitive and comparative with my peer group. Just to relax a bit. Richard Dannett said this to me, Jonathan, you, you've got time. Just don't be too intense. Now, he is by nature very intense, but in a relaxed, calmer way of doing it. And so that there's, in some ways, army officers and RF officers, certain ones of them sort of cultivate this, uh, just sort of showed up and climbed this hill. What was it? What was it called? Oh, Everest, apparently. It's nothing really, mm-hmm. you know. Uh, there could be the overdone bit, but but uh, and uh, I remember doing the Cypress Double Mountain Marathon, where um, I, I do still hold the, the world record for that. That's something I'm very proud of. And uh, but Tom, uh, Tom Ryle, who, who's now a, a CEO, Tom, Tom ended up um, uh, just said, you know, big drinking bout the night before, and he said, you know, what, what's this? What's this walkabout thing? I'll I'll come and run at the mountain with you, and, and he sort of. He ran for about eight hours with me up this mountain. Well, not eight hours, but it was sort of four up and four down. And 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 end up in the SES at the end. Yeah, there's sort of this understatement. So I think to be able to do it with a, a little bit of ease, but yet still have the drive. And then I I think get out there and listen to audiobooks and, and, and podcasts because it broadening and deepening your knowledge about all sorts of different experiences is is key. Yeah, that's great advice. I think, interestingly, I wish I'd done history. When I was at school, you, you sort of elected at one point before O-Level to do either history or geography, and I went down the geography route. And I actually, I wish I'd done history, uh, not because I, I wanted to become some you know, really deep historian, but just for exactly that reason, just to broaden your knowledge and, and about all sorts of things that actually are really important. And, and reading, you know, I mean, I read quite a lot and always have read quite a lot, but I've, I've not necessarily always read the right things at the right time. Uh, so, and audiobooks like you, I mean, I love audiobooks now. I think the it's a fantastic way of when, you, when you're out walking the dog, driving the car, you know, those sorts of things. Actually, I, I find them, you know, audiobooks are a really, and podcasts are, are great in those, uh, those kind of environments. They mm. work really, really well. Mm. So we're going to go back into highs and lows. When you look back across your whole career, what do you wish you'd done differently? Oh, wow. Um, well, it's a, it's a funny one. I'm, I'm actually, I've made many mistakes along the way, and, and, but I wouldn't be where I'm at now, which is really this place of contentment. And, and happiness is wanting what you already have rather than success is getting what you want. And, and so I am actually very contented and very happy now, and I'm living my life on purpose, and I'm living... My dream uh, with, you know, the love of my life, Lee, I've got you know, four, four children, got two rambunctious dogs who are just here in the room with me having fun. <laughs> um, and, and so I am, in some ways, I wouldn't want to not have some of the experience, but there are some experiences I, I, wouldn't, I wish I hadn't done. One is I got defrauded by a lady called Sasha Morris, who's now in jail, to invest in properties originally a flat in the uk but then she persuaded me to invest in cyprus and the one flat that i was going to get turned into eight then i got involved with a property fraudster it, it spiraled on to 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 lose over three hundred thousand pounds over 10 years put immense strain i think on my first marriage i mentioned already about being less intense when i was in the military um though funny enough um i I wish I'd gone for SAS selection. Whether I got in, I don't know. I, I got I'd got through airborne selection, and so I knew I was sort of fit enough. I was probably a 
my frame was a bit light for some of the, the heavy carrying over the Brecon beacons and that sort of resilience you need. But I love the navigation. I love the orienteering, the mountains. And But it, it so happened just as I was, I had the officer selection week in the diary. Then another friend of mine in special forces um, who'd been undercover in Ireland, Nick Metcalf, he was driving myself and two of my friends from Yorkshire and a hopper bus pulled out and we smashed into the side of it. And I ended up with a pneumothorax collapsed lung and back problems just before I was going to do, do it. And so I, I didn't get around to doing that one. And then I let it go. Life happened. I, I wonder if I'd done it. But then I, I've had so many friends of mine who went and did it, but are, are very traumatized by the PTSD. And they saw, and you and I were talking about some of the, uh, really tough situations the SAS have had to be in in Iraq and Afghanistan and other places with Colombian drug barons. So, so I probably in in some cases, you know, if I hadn't invested in Cyprus, what would I have done with the money? I don't know. But um, I'm certainly pleased with you know my ten years in the Royal Signals, my ten years in the Green Howards, my time in all these different companies from PricewaterhouseCoopers to IBM to um, the different leaders I'd worked with. But I think um, probably could have handled my first divorce better. I, I, I wish I'd handled that better. Uh, but we're now, my ex-wife and I, uh, you know, we met at our daughter's weddings, which are this year, and that all went terribly well. And we were, we were very civil with each other and uh, and that. But it's just always, it's always hard. Anybody going through a divorce, it's not, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. It really is so so tough. So those are some of yeah, the things. Got one of those t-shirts. So now yeah. I completely understand that. Uh, it is a very difficult time for sure. No matter how well prepared you yeah. think you are mentally yeah. for it, yeah. and yeah, yeah. Uh, it's, that's hard. No, it's it's an interesting list. I mean, it, it, reflecting on your SAS selection point. I mean, I I was just thinking. In fact, I did on the podcast I've just put out this week, which is a, just a personal one, personal stories one, where I've been doing some about my kind of journey through uh, the training system into operational flying and those sorts of things. Uh, I had a moment back in, it was 1988, I think, when the uh, when it actually happened, that I had to make a choice between going on an exchange tour to go and fly for the German Air Force or going on the Qualified Weapons Instructor course, which would have meant going and becoming a weapons instructor that would have taken me to one of the Jaguar squadrons back at Coltschall from Germany, where I was at the time. And the uh, and I chose to go down the exchange tour route, which was great, and lots of good stuff came from that. But of course, in 1990, the Gulf War happened, and all the guys I had worked with, uh, you know, um, for years in terms of building up capability, disappeared off to go and do the Gulf War. And the Germans, you know, for all very good sound reasons for Germany, were not involved in that at all. So you know, it was we watched from afar while uh, while this all happened. And I've often reflected on, uh, you know, of the one thing really where it's been a big moment for me mm-hmm. where I talked about forks in the road that I try not to have regrets and I want to want, you know, want to stick with my course. That's the one where I've kind of gone, but life could have been quite different if I'd gone and done that, I think, in terms of where, you know, the direction of travel and stuff that I would have done and so on. So it is, yeah, it's really interesting to to have those kind of reflection points, isn't it? What about positives, though? What's your what would you consider as your most important achievement for you uh, so far, personally? And you mentioned the legacy word when you were talking about uh, about your compass earlier. It, it, what would it, where do you want to end up in le- in legacy terms? Mm, yeah, I, th- I think the first one I'd always begin with is family. 
I'm really proud to be a father uh, to two lovely daughters who are now married and hopefully will have their own children. Um, I've got two lovely stepchildren and their partners and grandchildren. Um, I think a great achievement is is meeting and marrying Lee, my my, my wife. Um, she really does sort of complete me. I, I feel a better man because of having met her and spending my time with her. You know, I, I do want to grow old disgracefully with her um, and love love our time together. So I think that's a family is is, is always going to be a legacy, a stewardship, a, a having the right life partner. Um, as far as um, in my my sort of sporting prowess, I think um, the Cyprus Double Mountain Marathon World Record. I I still feel massively proud of that, and, and can remember to this day running down the dirt track into Episcopi with the Scots Guards pipers playing along the thing, and the commander officer in the helicopter going, "Come on, Jonathan! Come on, the Scots Guards!" <laughs> and and there was you know. The battalion and all the locals uh, with the finish line of the Cyprus walkabout cheering us on, lifting me onto their shoulders and carrying me into the sergeant's mess to pour beer down my throat at the end of it. And and I just never forget that. You know, that was 1985. I mean, it was years ago, but it, it seems like today. Um, I suppose um, meeting Her Majesty the Queen and getting the the um, the MBE, um, just her charisma. No, no, not charisma. Her, her inspiration. She was. She is a truly inspiring leader. She's no longer alive, obviously, but I, I will never forget my ninety seconds with her when, when she seemed to know all about me without any earpiece or briefing notes or reading us from a script. That was very impressive. Um, very proud to have have passed airborne selection um, for the Paras, and um, afterwards meeting General uh, Howlett. Uh, edge of the sword fame, who very kindly offered me a place in three para, which I, I was trying to join the Paris that time. But then I got cold feet and I thought post Falklands, it's like a year or two after the Falklands. And, and I went for a night out in Aldershot and that was enough to put me off forever. Cause I just saw how the soldiers and the officers behaved in Aldershot in this rather brutal, brutish way. And it, it was heavy machismo and violence and I thought, that's not what I want. I don't want the Scots Guards on one end because they offered me a place in the 2nd Battalion when I was a platoon commander there because I'm, I'm not landed aristocracy and my friend had castles and landed grouse moor. So I, I wasn't that, but I wasn't at the, at the massively violent end of the scale, particularly just post-Falklands, Three Power was a very corporal-led kind of organisation. So I sort of found this place in the middle, which was the Green Howards, um, but very, very proud to have done airborne selection. Um, I think achievements, I, I will look back that I have touched the lives of thousands of individual people and their teams in one-on-one -on -one coaching and in just asking great questions, which really make them think uh, and keep the ownership with them or sharing tips and techniques through the podcast that I, I think my legacy to be inspiring leadership, that I want to inspire leadership in other people. And, and that was the moment when I met my father's pilots, where one of them said, you, you know, you could have a calling, you could go out there, meet interesting men and women like you and others, learn from them and pass on those tips of being an inspiring leader to other people. That could be your legacy.
And I've made that my legacy, and that is my legacy. So if I die tomorrow, I know I've touched the lives of many people, but mostly the the way I've been as a as a father and as a uh, and as a husband to Lee. Yeah. No, there's a great set of issues. I think the it's very interesting on your world record one. I, I when when I did that German exchange tour, I was mentioning a minute ago, the the doctor that looked after the air crew on uh, on at that time, his wife was a a runner and she had won the 800 meters gold medal at the Olympics in 1972 for Germany and broke the world record. She was the first woman to run under two minutes for uh, for the 800 meters. And it was fascinating. I, I was around at dinner um, at their house one night and, and she had a picture, obviously a press, a press sort of broadcast picture taken of them all coming off the final bend. And bear in mind, this was in 19, I think I'd finished the tour, I'd gone back to Germany subsequently after this, so it was like 1993 or something. Mm-hmm. And so 20 years later, because she's uh, she did this in 1972, and she could relive every second of you know, she talked through the journey from that final bend to the finish line, and so I think those kind of things. If you've had those sort of moments, you never forget. Yeah, you know, you're 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 going to be. It's going to be crystal clear. What for every high, there's a low. What's your career kind of low point, and what did you learn from it? Um. Yeah, I think um, with that intensity that I wanted to, you know, live my mother's wish of becoming a general. Um, going to staff college was was very important. Came out in the top ten percent of my generation, which was a a great accolade. Got got a chief of staff of a brigade, but I somewhere along the line sort of blotted my copybook. Or I think I found out years later when I was at Sandhurst, um, the deputy commandant who I never met. I don't think I don't remember meeting him. Anyway, he'd put in my report that he questioned my judgment. Now, you know, as an officer, questioning your judgment is like death. You know, end this man's career now. Now, I was going through, you know, my my first marriage was struggling a bit. We just newly married. Um, I I wasn't a brilliant officer at Santos as an instructor. My peer group went on to become generals and joined the SAS and things like that. And I'd been selected by the Royal Signals to be their person there. But I don't think I deserve to be just like chopped off below the legs without knowing it. I, I would love to have been brought in and had a briefing that, look, you know, you made this decision and, and we really questioned the judgment you had over the way you, you know, selected or or got rid of certain cadets. Uh, that would be useful. But I never knew it until years later when I look back and I and I then see that they said, you know, promote in his turn. Well, that's going to be ages, isn't it? You know, it's promote immediately um promote the next opportunity or whatever it is but i didn't get promoted to lieutenant colonel at the first opportunity or the second and at the third i sort of realized you know look you know you're eventually maybe going to become lieutenant colonel maybe a colonel maybe a brigadier if you really work hard but but I, by then i'd done the i'd realized i i could tell the wind had changed something you know was going on and I probably wouldn't come on my battalion, the Green Howards, because uh, they had their sort of favourites, and um, and so really, that's when I did the MBA. Uh, even before I said the first, the first opportunity before the first opportunity, I'd done the MBA, and I thought I need to go out into industry. So it was a low point, but yet it forced me 
to reappraise, is this for me? I mean, I, I, I loved the military for 20 years and I was pretty good at it and, 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 got, and got some amazing jobs and roles and kept getting selected for great jobs. But there were, for the future, there were people who were destined to make the top jobs. And and my generation at Staff College have gone on to do some amazing jobs. I've interviewed a number of them, from just Deputy Supreme Allied Commander Europe to lots of four-star generals and, and, and very successful people. So while that was hard at the time, it made me just completely, from a blinkered look at the army, got to be, you know, push on, become a general, I realized there's a whole world out there. I mean, there's only 70,000 people in the army now. You know, uh, uh, it's tiny. I mean, there's more people in, in Hezbollah than there are in the British army. You know, <laughs> just like it's so insignificant in the scheme of business and life. So there's a whole world out there and I need to go out and reskill. And it was a blessing for me. So I think a low point turned out to be the kindest thing they could have done for me. So somewhere, some brigadier, thank you for shafting my career because actually I've come on and I've found my calling and that wasn't my calling. It was something I was okay at. I was pretty good, but I, I'm, I was put on the planet to do what I'm doing now and, and have these podcasts like we're having now. Yeah, it's great. That's a great answer. And I think, you know, as you say, um, making triumph through adversity and all that, from uh, from that, I remember well that confidential reporting time when you didn't get to know what someone had written about you, and they could tell you whatever they liked, and they'd actually written something completely different. It was very very frustrating. Mm. I feel for you. That's a, uh, it's a it's a challenge. Hey, I'm very conscious of your time, but there's there's, um, there's a couple of questions I always ask that I want to get to, but there's one I want just want to get a quick answer out of you first because with all the experience you've got, where do you think? the kind of greatest opportunities lie in terms of improvements of individual or collective leadership development for um, the private sector predominantly, but uh, but applicable across the world? Because I, I have some views on this, but I'd be really interested in your take. Yeah, that is a, that's a great question and needs some quite deep thinking. If, if asked just initially to think about this, I think there has been this shift from working from home and um, office optional, as uh, one of my guests called it. He wrote a book about it. He never had an office ever. They just come together at different times. So I think it requires a different way of leading and getting people together. But you do need them to come together at times, but not every week for four days a week in the office, which is what the command and control kind of leaders, they're trying to control people or put spyware on their laptops to work out how often they're working. I mean, goodness me, you know, what's going on? So I think that this whole thing about there's a, the Edelman Trust Index is a, is a measure of trust in different organizations. And over the years, it's, it's diminished everywhere. So I think, I think we're going to have to revisit this whole area of trust. Then I think there's AI and reskilling, because I, 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 I do think in the whole leadership area, AI will help to sort out a lot of things around psychometrics and kind of person you are, the kind of roles that you should be in. You're going to have to reskill because a lot of these jobs won't require the kind of grunt work that's been done before and a whole profession built around being knowledgeable about medical matters or legal matters, which an AI machine will know way more than you and all the, the latest uh, information. So, so you know, working alongside AI to, to be an interpreter of it and asking it the right clever questions. 
I do think we have got a, a world which is full of this uh, age of the strong man. And whether it be Netanyahu or Trump coming back in or Xi Jinping or Putin or whatever it is, that that I think that's creating uh, the same kind of people trying to do that in business as well, strongman leadership, which I don't think is the answer at all. Um, and geopolitics and a potential World War Three, I think, you know, we'll sit in some five years from now and look back and go, hey. Bob, do you remember when we did that podcast when things were all calm and quiet before the war? Um, so, you well, know, I hope we're still able to do it well, after the war. <laughs> you know, who, who's to know? But I think the the final thing is that um, the the whole area of inspiring leadership and developing great leaders, which you and I are so keen on, I think is more important than ever. And and I, you you can't make a cost savings and cut out inspiring leaders. You, you you need it at all levels and and people that leadership is a choice that people make to be an inspiring leader and and everybody can be if they're prepared to they have the right character and they're prepared to, to work hard enough to learn the skills unless they're manipulative and deceitful when they're never going to be inspiring leaders they're going to be misleaders that's my thoughts yeah, really interesting. We could have a whole podcast just on this, I'm sure. Maybe that's a good idea for some point in the future. But the, uh, uh, just to tick two little boxes that I like to tick, what's the most memorable event of your uh, of your career so far? My career, um, I think, was was after the uh, helping train up the Australians. Uh, we I took a brigade headquarters. We made up, in addition to 15 brigade, I was the chief of staff, um, a mixture of 120 officers and men and women from around the UK to go to Australia and train the Australians for the East Timor operation to stop the the militias who were massacring and raping and murdering. And because that went so well, um, I went to see uh, Queen Elizabeth in the palace and get the MBE. Uh, and that was something I'll never forget. Yeah, that's a pretty memorable event. That's for sure. I can, uh, can completely accept that. Uh, and the final question is, what's the most difficult question you've ever been asked? Great question for a coach. Well, uh, uh, two thoughts come to mind. Um, the first one is my uh, three-year-old granddaughter of my stepson, um, Daniel. And, and Grace would ask, Papa, why? Papa, why? And I'll explain why. And then she'd go, why? And like, Papa, why? And so it's like the, the, the seven whys, but yet 20 of them. So that's the, the first thought, getting asked by a, a small person why things are as they are and having to explain the way that they can understand without saying, because it's so, um, is, is important. The second one was um, when I uh, met General ha Harry Langfield and Harry uh, selected people for McKinsey. And I was very interested in joining McKinsey just after I left. Uh, deep respect for the organization. And, and I said, Look, you know, I only came to ask your advice, but um, about you know, just going into business before I leave the army. And he said, "No, I think you should. Go. I think you've got a great profile here. You should go for McKinsey." Um, and I got through about seven interviews, but then I got to the famous McKinsey mental maths question. Now, suffering from dyslexia and a thing called dyscalculia, um, when you're asked, you know, Tesco last year made eighty nine point two eight billion or whatever they did. You know, this year they're going to make 13% less. How much is that? 
And I oh, went, God. can I have a calculator? And they went, no, no, do it in your head, do it in your head, come on, do it in your head. And I go, no, I, I can't, I can't answer that question. I just, you know, my brain doesn't work that way. So I think, I think that meant I didn't get into McKinsey, but at the same time, I was also having the interview for PricewaterhouseCoopers and the partner asked me, so Jonathan, what would happen if McKinsey offer you twice as much as us? And I said, that, that was a great question. And I said, great question. I said, I'd feel, dis- I'd feel disappointed with you. And she went, I like that answer. You're in. And, and so actually, while I didn't get into McKinsey's, um, which I only learned later on that I'd, I had to do that mental math testing to get it, I did get a lovely place in, in um, PricewaterhouseCoopers. And, and that was the making of me in business. So, you know, great difficult questions lead to uh, selection in another, another direction. Nice. Yeah, it's a really good uh, good closeout. So, Jonathan, I knew it would be a great interview because uh, I loved it when I was on your podcast and it's been an absolute privilege to uh, to have you back on this one. Thank you very, very much indeed for some fantastic insights. Really appreciate it. Well, Bob, thank you. And and you do a great podcast. Keep it going. You, you've, you've got a lovely curiosity and some wonderful questions. So thank you for having me on. Terrific. Thanks a lot. 